All right. Could you please turn with me or scroll with me, if you have a smartphone, to Psalm 127. We're reading out of the ESV. And uh, Psalm 127. Uh, this is the second to last psalm that we are going to be doing uh, this summer. Uh, next week, Nathan's preaching. The week after, I'm doing Psalm 110, which is going to double as an introduction back into Hebrews. Um, because Psalm 110 is uh, quoted many times in the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and then we're Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek. I'm looking forward to that. Psalm 127. Have you ever watched a movie or had a conversation with someone and you think it's about one subject and then it just completely jumps onto something else? A lot of black comedies do that. Um, Psalm 127 is kind of like this as you read it. It starts about talking about building a house and the Lord building a house, and then it jumped to talking about children, and I was just very confused reading it. Like it seems like there's like a couple verses of one psalm and then another psalm, and they've just been jammed together. What's going on here? There is a theme going through Psalm 127, and these two, uh, this psalm is one psalm. It is connected, and this psalm is about God's care and his protection and use of place and people for his glory. So it's about place, God using place and people together uh, for his glory and his protection of those two things. This has got implications for the church. It's got implications for mission. It's got implications for family. It's got implications for eschatology. It's got all sorts of implications, right? So we're going to come up with some. I want to say right from the get-go, this is going to feel a little bit like a Bible study more than a sermon, right? But you can, you, everyone's got a phone. You can take notes and some of the, the texts that are just going to keep flowing out of my mouth. Um, and it is a, is a great, great uh, psalm. And actually some of the songs that we have sung and we read from Hebrews 12 all kind of tie into this theme of people and place in God's redemptive story. So, Psalm 127, let's read together. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord built the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. But he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of God. The title says that this psalm is a psalm of 
Asenth, all right? It's a song of Asenth, and then it says of Solomon. So we've looked at a few over the summer of these Psalms of Asenth, and basically the idea is, is that about three times a year, people that Jews that lived outside of Jerusalem would travel in for one of the big festivals like Passover or Pentecost, and wherever you were coming from, outside of Jerusalem, you had to ascend uphill to get to the temple. So the psalm of Asen, so pilgrims and travelers would come and they would head towards Jerusalem and they would ascend towards the temple. And these are the kind of uh, psalms that they would sing. So from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, they'd be reading them and singing them and retelling them. Um, and uh, they would be encouraging themselves with these truths. The author is Solomon. Solomon being King Solomon, the son of David. So we've got King David, then his son, King Solomon. Now, Psalm 127, specifically the first verse, right? Unless the Lord built the house, the builders, those who build it labor in vain, has been used for a variety of things in popular culture. The whole psalm has been used for a variety of things in popular culture. The city of Edinburgh in Scotland, I know I'm not pronouncing that right, since the mid-17th century, on its coat of arms, it's got... The city's got its own uh, slogan, and it says, Nisi Dominus Frustra, which means in Latin, except the Lord in vain. The purpose the Scottish Presbyterians had for Edinburgh was that it would be a city that God built and a city that God watched over. And many, they they say kind of uh, sadly, Many in that city wouldn't have a clue what Psalm 127 is about. Like, can you really say Edinburgh is the city that God has built? Um, so that's uh, one, one such use. Many use that, unless the Lord built the house, kind of line as a general like wisdom proverb, right? We use it for, for church plants, for ministries, for construction projects. I'm sure there's a building company out there that says, unless the Lord builds the house, some Christians um, doing that. It's just it's used for anything and everything, um, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. For some also is a favorite of what is called the Quiverful Movement. Anyone seen that TV show called 19 and Counting? Good for the rest of you. Um, <laughs> um, okay. And the, the idea behind the quiverful movement we see here in verse 5, it says, Blessed is the man who folds his quiver with them. Right, so, so children are arrows, you've got to have a quiver. That's the thing that you put arrows into. Blessed is the man who folds his quiver. Right? Have lots and lots and lots and lots of children and have a full quiver. Okay? And they try and say to you that a quiver used to hold five hours or seven hours. They're making that up. As someone said to me the other day, who says you can only have one quiver, right? I mean, it's just kind of like, how, 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 many, how many children is a full quiver? Now, I looked into this, and um, 
the only sort of like primary source documents that we have from around the time that this was written as to how many arrows were found in a quiver says that a quiver held about 30 arrows. How sinful do you feel right now? Um, disobeying the Lord. Uh, that's just not happening. Uh, Solomon, of course, and this is, this is interesting. Solomon, of course, how many wives did he have? Right? Hundreds and hundreds of wives and, 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 and concubines. It's interesting, though. Solomon's only said uh, in Scripture to have one son. Um, but they only tell him about uh, his, his heir. But I'm sure he had many, many, many uh, children. To read the psalm, it breaks up very nice and easily. The first two verses are about place, right? The house and the city. And the verses 3 to 5 are about people, the children, right? So we've got a division here. We'll look at place first. There's a very, very simple structure going on in verse 1. Human builders build the house, but unless the Lord builds the house with them, they're laboring in vain. There's a city. Watchmen are watching over the city at night, keeping it from, uh, keeping it protected uh, throughout the night. But unless the Lord watches, they watch in vain. It's showing for the people of Israel who received at this time as the Word of God a great personal and practical meaning. Israel in the land of Canaan, that land of milk and honey, and the city of Jerusalem. God built their house, which we'll see is the temple, and he watched over their city of Jerusalem as they uh, sought to keep his covenant Unless the Lord, it's all in vain. And a great personal, practical application for them. But this house, it's not referring to just any house. It's referring to the building of the temple. In 2 Samuel 7, David desired to build a house for the Lord. He desired to build a temple in which God would live and be worshipped. And David was not allowed to build that house. And we're told in First Chronicles that the reason he wasn't allowed to build the house was because he was a man of war. Right? David was at war with Israel's enemies, and so he wasn't able to build the house. The house, that temple, was only to be built once Israel was at rest, at peace with its enemies. Then the temple would stand as a monument to God's blessing upon Israel. And so, it makes perfect sense that this is the Psalm of Solomon, Psalm 127. It says the Psalm of Solomon because David's heir, Solomon, built this temple. He built the house. We see at the end of the second verse, it says, He gives to his beloved sleep or rest. Some of your Bible translations might say peace. And that word is important here. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 24 and 25, David comforted his wife Bathsheba, had a son with her, 
right? Bathsheba, by the way, the, the woman that he committed adultery with, that's where Solomon came from. Um, and then David gave Solomon a name, Jedediah, because of the Lord. That's in 2 Samuel 12. So Solomon had two names. Solomon, and then his father gave him a name, Jedediah. It's only mentioned once in Scripture. And it's taking the word David and Yah. Jedediah and Yah, putting them together. Beloved of God. That's what it means. And then in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9, we're told, Behold, a son shall be born to you, David, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. His name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. Jedediah means beloved of God. Solomon means rest or peaceful. Uh, and so we're seeing how God is weaving the psalm up and how he's putting this all into the tapestry of Scripture. Solomon was the man who would build the house for the Lord, and he would be a man of peace. He would be a man of peace for Israel, uh, and he would be used by God to give this nation rest under his kingship. So we see in this psalm here, we've got the Lord's care for the building of the house, and for the care of the city of Jerusalem. God knows what he's doing here. And Solomon was the man of the hour. There are many, many parallels between Solomon and Jesus Christ. Typologically, Christ is greater than Solomon. Both are kings of Israel. Christ would be the true, ultimate king of Israel. Both are called the son of David. Both are said to be the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Remember, Jedediah means beloved of God. Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You go read, say that in Hebrew, it says something like Jedediah. Um, and Jesus Christ, like Solomon, would bring peace because Isaiah tells us that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. God is so many steps ahead in this whole story. I know First Chronicles is one of those books that if you're doing one of those read the Bible in a year plan, you're like, you, you fall off the wagon in First Chronicles, right? I mean, just, just be honest, right? I mean, most people fall off the wagon by numbers, but um, okay, that's why I don't do them, because they just make me feel guilty. All right? Anyway, um, and I say that, all right? so don't feel bad. All right? You should read the Bible, but it's very, um, these things, once you understand what's going on in books like Second Samuel and First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, it actually becomes a lot more exciting. And in First Chronicles 28.20, David says to Solomon, his son, about building the temple, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Does that not sound like unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain? That's what it's saying. The temple was the house that the Lord built. 
And because Israel broke the Mosaic Covenant, there was an exile. The Babylonians came in and wiped that temple. After the exile, the temple was rebuilt, a second temple. And so that is what is really going on here in this time. This, what is the house that the Lord builds? It is the temple. It is the temple. We shouldn't apply it to just anything. And then it says in verse 2, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, it is in vain that you rise up. It's sharing the futility. If God is ultimately the one who watches over his places, he watches over his city, he watches over his people, it's the futility of being a believer and working with anxiety. God's people are to work. God's people are to spend their energy, but they need to trust in Him that it is ultimately Him who serves and protects. If you're one of those people that gets a paycheck each week and you look at it and you say, I did that. Yeah, you did that. But ultimately, all of the creation has come through God. We are merely stewards of what we have. And Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount expand on this uh, so well. Matthew chapter 6 um, is one such text. We eat the bread of anxious toil. No, God gives to his beloved rest. Let's move on to, to, the, uh, to the people part. I could talk about this for hours. I'm not going to. Um, and really debate about the number of children Christians should have. Um, I'm not going to really go there. This text shows God's sovereign providence in providing children. And for those of us that have suffered miscarriages, those of us that have suffered um, infertility, and many in this church, these, these texts are actually encouraging. Because it says that ultimately it is God who is the one that opens the womb. And we're told here in verse 4 that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. It makes very a lot of sense in the context. And then it says, he, in verse 5 it says, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So it's speaking about war that children, and specifically sons, would be used in, in war to care and protect uh, for, for their families. And then it says in a judicial sense, uh, in verse 5, children would be, hopefully, a testimony, a picture to the integrity of their parents. And specifically, in this case, probably the father. right? That your, your children a testimony to who you are as a parent. So some of you might hear that and go, oh no, that, I, please don't put my kids on the stand. But, but, but that, that, that's what it's saying. It's showing that children defend their parents' honor and that this would have been easily understood in Israel. John MacArthur, who, by the way, uh, is celebrating 50 years as pastor of Grace Community Church tomorrow. That's, uh, that's an immense thing to do. Uh, MacArthur, in one of his commentaries, I really liked it. He says that the words here, the children being a reward and children being a heritage of the Lord, uh, echoes back to God's promise to Abraham. 
that this in Psalm 127 is actually pointing back to Genesis 15. God brings Abraham outside, and he says in verse 5 of Genesis 15, God brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteous. And this gets played out in the New Testament, but Abraham had a son, Isaac, and God through that offspring, Isaac, would give Abraham such a numerous offspring. And we'll see how that works out in the rest of Scripture. Psalm 127 is echoing back to Genesis 15, children being the heritage of the Lord. Now, you say, what has this got to do with me? What's this got to do with me at all? We need to connect the place and the people with Jesus Christ, I would say. And I believe the New Testament does this well. These two sections are not as separate as they may initially appear. They've not just been mashed together, uh, verses 1 and 2 and then verses 3 to 5. There's a cool little... um, there's a cool little Hebrew, Hebrew intertextuality thing going on as well. I think J.R. Tolkien probably named some of his hobbits after Hebrew words here. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, which is the Hebrew word bonum, and then it says, when it, we get to the, the arrows, so are the sons of one's, worth, uh, of one's youth. Bodum. Bonum. Banum. Boulders, sons, Bonum, Banum, they're connected. It's trying to make you to make you see that they are connected. They're connected in other places in the Old Testament. In Second Samuel seven and Psalm one hundred and thirty-two, which is also part of the Psalms of Ascents, uh, you just read a few chapters over. It actually ties this up for you. David says to the Lord, "I will build you a house, Lord. I want to build you a temple," and God says, "No." You want to build me a house, I will build you a house. God doesn't build David a brick temple. David already had a big house. When God says, no, I will build you a house, he says, I will give you a family dynasty of children. I will give you a line of kings. David says, I will build you a house. God says, no, I will build you a house. House? Children, you see, they're fitting together. They're fitting together right here, even in the Psalms of Ascent in 132. So we must ask ourselves now as we read this psalm, right? hold on, we're getting there. Right? Is there a sense under the new covenant in which this psalm applies? Is there a sense in which the truth that we find in Psalm 127 is being worked out throughout the rest of Scripture? Yes. Otherwise, we say it only replies, applies to the physical temple and to Solomon, and then some statements about children. The Lord's built the house. He built the temple. What happened to that temple? When Christ died, <coughs> the veil was torn in two, showing that it was obsolete. And I mean that, obsolete. 
Don't offer sacrifices anymore. The sacrifices happen upon the cross. We must take this further to being about Jesus Christ and what is said about him and the rest of Scripture. <clears throat> we must ask ourselves the question, couple questions. We must ask ourselves, what house is God building? What city does God watch over? Who or what is the temple? And who are the children being spoken of here? Jesus says in John chapter 2 that he is the true temple, died and rose again on the third day, having turned on the veil, and we must be reconciled to God through him. It is through Christ we must go to worship. The Apostle Paul then writes, if Christ is the true temple, we have in union with Christ a relationship. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, he says this, so then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, both on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, that's temple language, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I love that text so much. What temple is God building? What house is the Lord building? Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The people of God who believe in the the true temple, Jesus Christ, are being made into a holy temple, a house of God, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Not made with bricks, but living stones, we're told in First Peter chapter 2. Let me go further. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus calls those whom he saves sons. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bring many sons to glory makes the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That we are sons of the living God just as Christ is the Son. He saves us. It goes further in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to this. Behold, I and the children God has given me. A quote from Isaiah. Then it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. For it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus Christ, those who he saves, are said to be sons of God, children of God. Who then are the children of Abraham? Last long quote from Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not 
though the word of God has failed. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, meaning physical offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted as offspring. Abraham had two sons, Isaac, Ishmael. Through this line came Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And therefore it says in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Who are the children of God? Those who have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who makes us children of God. Jesus Christ is the man who fills his quiver with the children of God. He builds them into a temple of the living God, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that it might be a city of God in New Jerusalem where God is worshipped truly. We see how the word just comes together and this picture comes to its climax right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22 where we see this picture of this new creation and there we have the temple of the living God, the Lamb, the people of God in a city in New Jerusalem all worshiping him. The house is the temple, is the city, is the people. It's all all interconnected. And that is what the Bible does with Psalm 127. Let me just pull a few very quick applications together. Firstly, we should see the value of children. Firstly, Christians are to be people that value children. Christians are people who want children to be valued in the womb and when they live. However a child comes into the world, it has value because it is an image bearer of God. Children are a good thing. They're not an ultimate thing, but they're a good thing. We should see also here the sovereignty of God in the womb. Lauren and I pray for more children because we understand ultimately that it is God who gives. So, firstly, see the value of children. I'm not going to go into this now uh, for time's sake, but when we get later into um, we get later into the book of Hebrews, we're going to look at the third temple. Uh, the people trying to build another temple. We'll look at, at the validity of that. Um, secondly, we should see in this text, specifically in verse 2, God cares for his people. Are you a Christian? Do you belong to him? Have you trusted in him? He cares for you. He gives rest. He provides. We should think of those verses. Are you not more valuable than the birds of the air and the lilies of the field? Well, God clothes them. Shall he not also look after you? We should see and believe God's care for his people and not eat the bread of anxious toil. I do that so much. So much. This is a great reminder. Third, God's care for his church. If God is building 
If God is building a people of God, if God is building this house, then truly God cares for his church. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. It says, Paul says, I worked, Apollos worked, we preached, we prayed, but God is the one who ultimately gives the growth. And then lastly, do we see the mission of the church here? Think about what the city is, think about what the house is, think about what the children are. Do we see the mission of the church? The Great Commission is about making disciples, is it not? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, and I am with you until the end of the age. The role of the church is to evangelize, to teach, proclaim the gospel, to teach, to raise up mature believers that think to do the will of God and to help build that temple. We work with the King, Jesus Christ, as he builds this temple. And then along with that, children fit into this too. Malachi 2.15, it says that God desires godly offspring. That as Christians, we should seek to, to train up children that they might come to faith and also build up this temple of living stones, this house of God that he has promised to watch over and grow. That's the mission of the church, and it's found right here in seed form in Psalm 127. Let's pray together.